Section 1 of Inca Lands. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Inca Lands by Hiram Bingham. Something hidden, go and find it. Go and look behind the ranges. Something lost behind the ranges. Lost and waiting for you. Go. Kipling, the Explorer. Inca Land, Exploration in the Highlands of Peru. By Hiram Bingham, Director of the Peruvian Expeditions of Yale University and the National Geographic Society, Member of the American Alpine Club, Professor of Latin American History in Yale University, Author of Across South America, etc. With illustrations, Boston and New York, Houghton Mifflin Company, The Riverside Press, Cambridge, 1922. This volume is affectionately dedicated to the muse who inspired it, the little mother of seven sons. Preface The following pages represent some of the results of four journeys into the interior of Peru, and also many explorations into the labyrinth of early writings which treat of the Incas and their land. Although my travels covered only a part of southern Peru, they took me into every variety of climate, and forced me to camp at almost every altitude at which men have constructed houses or erected tents in the western hemisphere, from sea level up to 21,703 feet. It has been my lot to cross bleak Andean passes, where there are heavy snowfalls and low temperatures, as well as to wend my way through gigantic canyons into the dense jungles of the Amazon basin, as hot and humid a region as exists anywhere in the world. The Incas lived in a land of violent contrasts. No deserts in the world have less vegetation than those of Siwas and Majes. No luxuriant tropical valleys have more plant life than the jungles of Conservidayo. In Inca land, one may pass from glaciers to tree ferns within a few hours. So also in the labyrinth of contemporary chronicles of the last of the Incas. No historians go more rapidly from fact to fancy, from accurate observation to grotesque imagination. No writers omit important details and give conflicting statements with greater frequency. The story of the Incas is still in a maze of doubt and contradiction. It was the mystery and romance of some of the wonderful pictures of a 19th century explorer that first led me into the relatively unknown region between the Apurimac and the Urubamba, sometimes called the Cradle of the Incas. Although my photographs cannot compete with the imaginative pencil of such an artist, nevertheless I hope that some of them may lead future travelers to penetrate still farther into the land of the Incas, and engage in the fascinating game of identifying elusive places mentioned in the chronicles. Some of my story has already been told in Harper's and the National Geographic, to whose editor's acknowledgments are due for permission to use the material in its present form. A glance at the bibliography will show that more than fifty articles and monographs have been published as a result of the Peruvian expeditions of Yale University and the National Geographic Society. Other reports are still in course of preparation. My own observations are based partly on a study of these monographs and the writings of former travelers, partly on the maps and notes made by my companions, and partly on a study of our Peruvian photographs, 
a collection now numbering over 11,000 negatives. Another source of information was the opportunity of frequent conferences with my fellow explorers. One of the great advantages of large expeditions is the bringing to bear on the same problem of minds which have received widely different training. My companions on these journeys were, in 1909, Mr. Clarence L. Hay, in 1911, Dr. Isaiah Bowman, Professor Harry Ward Foote, Dr. William G. Irving, Messrs. K. Hendrickson, H. L. Tucker, and Paul B. Lanius. In 1912, Professor Herbert E. Gregory, Dr. George F. Eaton, Dr. Luther T. Nelson, Messrs. Albert H. Bumstead, E. C. Erdis, Kenneth C. Hailed, Robert Stevenson, Paul Bester, Osgood Hardy, and Joseph Little, and in 1915, Dr. David E. Ford, Messrs. O. F. Cook, Edmund Heller, E. C. Erdis, E. L. Anderson, Clarence F. Maynard, J. J. Hasbrook, Osgood Hardy, Jeffrey W. Morkill, and G. Bruce Gilbert. To these, my comrades in enterprises which were not always free from discomfort or danger, I desire to acknowledge most fully my great obligations. In the following pages they will sometimes recognize their handiwork, at other times they may wonder why it has been overlooked. Perhaps in another volume, which is already under way, and in which I hope to cover more particularly Machu Picchu and its vicinity, they will eventually find much of what cannot be told here. Sincere and grateful thanks are due also to Mr. Edward S. Harkness for offering generous assistance when aid was most difficult to secure, to Mr. Gilbert Grosvenor and the National Geographic Society for liberal and enthusiastic support, to President Taft of the United States and President Leguia of Peru for official help of a most important nature, to Messrs. W. R. Grace and Company, and to Mr. William L. Morkill and Mr. L. S. Blaisdell of the Peruvian Corporation for cordial and untiring cooperation, to Don Cesare Lomellini, Don Pedro Duque, and their sons, and Mr. Frederick B. Johnson of Yale University for many practical kindnesses, to Mrs. Blanche Peberty Tompkins and Miss Mary G. Reynolds for invaluable secretarial aid, and last, but by no means least, to Mrs. Alfred Mitchell for making possible the writing of this book. Hiram Bingham, Yale University, October 1, 1922. Chapter 1. Crossing the Desert a kind friend in Bolivia once placed in my hands a copy of a most interesting book by the late E. George Squire, entitled Peru, Travel and Exploration in the Land of the Incas. In that volume is a marvelous picture of the Apurimac Valley. In the foreground is a delicate suspension bridge which commences at a tunnel in the face of a precipitous cliff and hangs in mid-air at great height above the swirling waters of the great speaker. In the distance, towering above a mass of stupendous mountains, is a magnificent snow-capped peak. The desire to see the Apurimac and experience the thrill of crossing that bridge decided me in favor of an overland journey to Lima. As a result, I went to Cusco, the ancient capital of the mighty empire of the Incas, and was there urged by the Peruvian authorities to visit some newly rediscovered Inca ruins. As readers of Across South America will remember, these ruins were at Choquequirao, an interesting place on top of a jungle-covered ridge 
several thousand feet above the roaring rapids of the great Apurimac. There was some doubt as to who had originally lived there. The prefect insisted that the ruins represented the residence of the Inca Manco and his sons, who had sought refuge from Pizarro and the Spanish conquerors of Peru in the Andes between the Apurimac and the Urubamba rivers. While Mr. Clarence L. Hay and I were on the slopes of Choquequirao, the clouds would occasionally break away and give us tantalizing glimpses of snow-covered mountains. There seemed to be an unknown region behind the ranges, which might contain great possibilities. Our guides could tell us nothing about it. Little was to be found in books. Perhaps Manco's capital was hidden there. For months afterwards the fascination of the unknown drew my thoughts to Chocoquiro and beyond. In the words of Kipling's explorer, a voice as bad as conscience rang interminable changes on one everlasting whisper day and night repeated so something hidden go and find it go and look behind the ranges something lost behind the ranges lost and waiting for you go to add to my unrest during the following summer i read bandelier's titicaca and coati which had just appeared in one of the interesting footnotes was this startling remark. It is much to be desired that the elevation of the most prominent peaks of the western or coast range of Peru be accurately determined. It is likely that Coropuna, in the Peruvian coast range of the department Arequipa, is the culminating point of the continent. It exceeds 23,000 feet in height, whereas Aconcagua, conceded to be the highest peak in the western hemisphere, is but 22,763 feet, 6,940 meters, above sea level. His estimate was based on a survey made by the civil engineers of the Southern Railways of Peru, using a section of the railroad as a base. My sensations when I read this are difficult to describe. Although I had been studying South American history and geography for more than ten years, I did not remember ever to have heard of Coropuna. On most maps it did not exist. Fortunately, on one of the sheets of Raimondi's large-scale map of Peru, I finally found Coropuna, 6,949 meters, 9 meters higher than Aconcagua, 100 miles northwest of Arequipa, near the 73rd meridian west of Greenwich. Looking up and down the 73rd meridian as it crossed Peru from the Amazon Valley to the Pacific Ocean, I saw that it passed very near Choquequirao, and actually traversed those very lands behind the ranges which had been beckoning to me. The coincidence was intriguing. The desire to go and find that something hidden was now reinforced by the temptation to go and see whether Coropuna really was the highest mountain in America. There followed the organization of an expedition whose object was a geographical reconnaissance of Peru along the 73rd meridian. From the head of canoe navigation on the Urubamba to tidewater on the Pacific, we achieved more than we expected. Our success was due in large part to our unit food boxes, a device containing a balanced ration which Professor Harry W. Foote had cooperated with me in assembling. The object of our idea was to facilitate the provisioning of small field parties by packing in a single box everything that two men would need in the way of provisions for a given period. These boxes have given such general satisfaction, not only to the explorers themselves, 
but to the surgeons who had the responsibility of keeping them in good condition that a few words in regard to this feature of our equipment may not be unwelcome the best unit food box provides a balanced ration for two men for eight days breakfast and supper being hearty cooked meals and luncheon light and uncooked it was not intended that the men should depend entirely on the food boxes but should vary their diet as much as possible with whatever the country afforded which in southern peru frequently means potatoes corn eggs mutton and bread nevertheless each box contained sliced bacon tinned corned beef roast beef chicken salmon crushed oats milk cheese coffee sugar rice army bread salt sweet chocolates assorted jams pickles and dried fruits and vegetables by seeing that the jam dried fruits soups and dried vegetables were well assorted a sufficient variety was procured without destroying the balanced character of the ration on account of the great difficulty of transportation in the southern andes we had to eliminate foods that contained a large amount of water like french peas baked beans and canned fruits however delicious and desirable they might be in addition to food we found it desirable to include in each box a cake of laundry soap two yards of dish toweling and three empty cotton cloth bags to be used for carrying lunches and collecting specimens the most highly appreciated article of food in our boxes was the rolled oats a dish which on account of its being already partially cooked was easily prepared at high elevations where rice cannot be properly boiled it was difficult to satisfy the members of the expedition by providing the right amount of sugar at the beginning of the field season the allowance one-third of a pound per day per man seemed excessive and i was criticized for having overloaded the boxes after a month in the field the allowance proved to be too small and had to be supplemented many people seem to think that it is one of the duties of an explorer to rough it and to trust to luck for his food i had found on my first two expeditions in venezuela and colombia and across south america that the result of being obliged to subsist on irregular and haphazard rations was most unsatisfactory while roughing it is far more enticing to the inexperienced and indiscreet explorer i learned in peru that the humdrum expedient of carefully preparing months in advance a comprehensive bill of fare sufficiently varied wholesome and well balanced is the better part of valor the truth is that providing an abundance of appetizing food adds very greatly to the effectiveness of a party to be sure it may mean trouble and expense for one's transportation department and some of the younger men may feel that their reputations as explorers are likely to be damaged if it is known that strawberry jam sweet chocolate and pickles are frequently found on their menu nevertheless experience has shown that the results of trusting to luck and living as the natives do means not only loss of efficiency in the day's work but also lessened powers of observation and diminished enthusiasm for the drudgery of scientific exploration exciting things are always easy to do no matter how you are living but frequently they produce less important results than tasks which depend upon daily drudgery and daily drudgery depends upon a regular supply of wholesome food we reached arequipa the proposed base for our campaign against mount coropuna in june nineteen eleven we learned that the peruvian winter reaches its climax in july or august 
and that it would be folly to try to climb Coropuna during the winter snowstorms. On the other hand, the summer months, beginning with November, are cloudy and likely to add fog and mist to the difficulties of climbing a new mountain. Furthermore, June and July are the best months for exploration in the eastern slopes of the Andes in the upper Amazon basin, the lands behind the ranges. Although the montaña, or jungle country, is rarely actually dry, there is less rain then than in the other months of the year, so we decided to go first to the Urubamba Valley. The story of our discoveries there, of identifying Huiticos, the capital of the last Incas, and of the finding of Machu Picchu, will be found in later chapters. In September I returned to Arequipa, and started the campaign against Coropuna by endeavoring to get adequate transportation facilities for crossing the desert. Arequipa, as everybody knows, is the home of a station of the Harvard Observatory, but Arequipa is also famous for its large mules. Unfortunately, a mule trust had recently been formed, needless to say by an American, and I found it difficult to make any satisfactory arrangements. After two weeks of skirmishing, the Tejada brothers appeared, two arrieros, or muleteers, who seemed willing to listen to our proposals. We offered them a thousand soles, five hundred dollars gold, if they would supply us with a pack train of eleven mules for two months, and go with us wherever we chose, we agreeing not to travel on an average more than seven leagues a day. It sounds simple enough, but it took no end of argument and persuasion on the part of our friends in Arequipa to convince these worthy arrieros that they were not going to be everlastingly ruined by this bargain. The trouble was that they owned their mules, knew the great danger of crossing the deserts that lay between us and Mount Coropuna, and feared to travel on unknown trails. Like most muleteers, they were afraid of unfamiliar country. They magnified the imaginary evils of the road to an inconceivable pitch. The argument that finally persuaded them to accept the proffered contract was my promise that after the first week the cargo would be so much less that at least two of the pack mules could always be free. The Tejadas, realizing only too well the propensity of pack animals to get sore backs and go lame, regarded my promise in the light of a factor of safety. Lame mules would not have to carry loads. Everything was ready by the end of the month. Mr. H. L. Tucker, a member of Professor H. C. Parker's 1910 Mount McKinley expedition, and thoroughly familiar with the details of snow and ice climbing, whom I had asked to be responsible for securing the proper equipment, was now entrusted with planning and directing the actual ascent of Coropuna. Whatever success was achieved on the mountain was due primarily to Mr. Tucker's skill and foresight. We had no Swiss guides, and had originally intended to ask two other members of the expedition to join us on the climb. However, the exigencies of making a geological and topographical cross-section along the 73rd meridian through a practically unknown region and across one of the highest passes in the Andes, 17,633 feet, had delayed the surveying party to such an extent as to make it impossible for them to reach Coropuna before the 1st of November. On account of the approach of the cloudy season, it did not seem wise to wait for their cooperation. Accordingly, I secured in Arequipa the services of Mr. Casimir Watkins, an English naturalist, and of Mr. F. Hinckley of the Harvard Observatory. It was proposed that Mr. Hinckley, who had twice ascended El Misti, 
19,120 feet, should accompany us to the top, while Mr. Watkins, who had only recently recovered from a severe illness, should take charge of the base camp. The prefect of Arequipa obligingly offered us a military escort in the person of Corporal Gamarra, a full-blooded Indian of rather more than average height and considerably more than average courage, who knew the country. As a member of the mounted gendarmerie, Gamarra had been stationed at the provincial capital of Cotahuasi a few months previously. One day a mob of drunken, riotous revolutionists stormed the government buildings while he was on sentry duty. Gamarra stood his ground, and when they attempted to force their way past him, shot the leader of the crowd. The mob scattered. A grateful prefect made him a corporal, and realizing that his life was no longer safe in that particular vicinity, transferred him to Arequipa. Like nearly all of his race, however, he fell an easy prey to alcohol. There is no doubt that the chief of the mounted police in Arequipa, when ordered by the prefect to furnish us an escort for our journey across the desert, was glad enough to assign Gamarra to us. His courage could not be called in question, even though his habits might lead him to become troublesome. It happened that Gamarra did not know we were planning to go to Cotahuasi. Had he known this, and also had he suspected the trials that were before him on Mount Coropuna, he probably would have begged off. But I am anticipating. End of section 1